0: Hey, Don. Hello, Zach. This week, I've got three just sort of short articles that came across my news feed over the last week or so, and I just wanted to get your opinion. I want to talk about Mariah Carey's hit, All I Want for Christmas and Christmas Carols This Time of Year. I want to talk about the slow death and decline of Sears as they are barely making it through maybe their final <laughs> holiday season. And then there's an interesting lawsuit against Kraft, cheese. I guess they're the owners of Velveeta, and apparently they've been falsely advertising. But I want to start out with Mariah Carey and All I Want for Christmas. The Wall Street Journal just had an interesting story about the retail workers that every year have to essentially spend all November and December listening to one of the mega Christmas carols of this time. And here's the best paragraph I read. At least three petitions on change.org seek to slay Miss Carey's 1994 holiday hit, All I Want for Christmas is You. One begs the Federal Communication Commission to ban it from radio and calls it the bane of shoppers, retail workers, and pedestrians. A representative for the singer declined to comment. The pop diva encourages people to start playing her song the day after Halloween. In a recent video posted by her Twitter account, she transforms from a Peloton riding witch to a reindeer riding Santa Claus It's time, she tweeted November 1st. And Don, the article just goes on to talk about a lot of frustrated retail workers and people in restaurants that just can't stand the song as it seems to be played more and more now than ever before. What did you think about the article?
1: I have no tremendous distaste for this song, but I also don't work in retail and hear this all day long. And that's what the article is about. These people that hear it like every 20 minutes, every all day long as they are wrapping packages up at JCPenney or whatever they're doing. And yeah, it's brutal. I love that she's doubling down on it. Mariah Carey is now 52. She recorded this 30 years ago, and it was probably just a one-off quick, I'm 24, let's record this little Christmas thing between three other things I'm trying to do and some event or whatever. And it is defining her. And I'm sure she wouldn't have thought that defines her, but it is. And she's doubling down. She's all in. She's like, <laughs> let's make money on this thing. Play it. Stream, 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 stream. And uh, I, I I don't really love the song. I prefer my old songs and that are sang by old people that I grew up with. But, yeah, I appreciate the effort.
0: It is kind of interesting that she broke through the Christmas Carol, like, wall. There's so many songs during the holiday season, and so many classics, as you're saying, and that's what a lot of people want to hear. And there's so many forgettable new Christmas songs that come out by people that kind of want to be the next Mariah Carey, right? And they just kind of bring in a bunch of cliches and try to talk about what a special time of year. And it's like, this is a terrible song. I'd love to know the history of, you're right, like, was it just some like Saturday and they're like, hey, here's a Christmas song for your upcoming album. And they just kind of banged it out, didn't think too much about it. And yet, you're right. She now has doubled down on something where I'm amazed when my kids tell Apple Music, like, just play Christmas music. I feel like every 20 minutes, it pops up on the rotation. It has now, like, really made it in as a staple Christmas song. And you think about how hard that is to do. Absolutely. And I don't even remember hearing it more than until
1: fairly recently, maybe the last five, ten years. It was not in heavy rotation in the 90s. Um, we were focused on Nirvana and uh, Pearl Jam. We weren't listening to this, but this is, uh, apparently that's, at some point it took hold, and now it really dominates. Um, the other one they talk about in this article is Wham's Last Christmas, which I actually do enjoy, despite the fact that it's even older and more bizarre. And George Michael's dead. I don't know who the other guy is in Wham!, but is, that's a, while ago but i don't know why these have come back
0: i do think the streaming world probably helps as it can take lots of uh diverse music and kind of bring it together in a weird package the one that's always interesting is that do they know it's christmas time at all and it was kind of a lot of those rich rock stars singing about the people of africa and kind of how poor they are and for some reason that one gets a lot of playtime as well which is just kind of always interesting
1: oh yeah i mean the ones that I really like are always kind of weird. Like, okay, you got uh, John Lennon, who's a proud atheist, thinking about singing about Christmas. I like that song a lot, but that's kind of weird. And uh, I, I still love Baby It's Cold Outside, even though it's probably inappropriate now. But Ray Charles singing Baby It's Cold Outside with uh, uh, I forget who he's with, but it, it's
0: fantastic. That one has sort of you're right that one you're not allowed to listen to anymore or at least you can't admit that you listen to it anymore because it's just really not appropriate in terms of the overtones of maybe what's going on in that song right
1: yeah i i still enjoy the song i still love it
0: well here's a question for you because yesterday i was somewhere and uh another classic christmas carol came on jingle bell rock with kind of twangy guitar thing it's a brutally slow song. And yet it probably was really edgy back in the 40s or the 50s whenever it came out. I think it's absolutely terrible. I, I really cannot st- stand that song at all. And I guess my question is: like, what would you rather listen to? Jingle Bell Rock or All I Want for Christmas?
1: I think Jingle Bell Rock. I just I, I love the old stuff. I mean, but There is kind of a weird – you hit about a little uh, interesting point that the the kind of risque Christmas song, Santa Baby by Eartha Kitt, that's pretty risque, and that's a long time ago. And so it is – people have have found a little niche here in the Christmas period to be a little bit excited by the mistletoe, perhaps.
0: Well, think about I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus. I mean, what was – What's the undertone of that? Well, I I guess I get what the undertone of that was, but um, you're right. People have been playing around with suggestive ideas in in Christmas for a lot longer than I guess you really want to think about. And it's amazing that those now are just, again, in the heavy rotated plays of, of streaming music and stuff like that. Well,
1: and there's this whole world of Christmas movies on like Lifetime or whatever channel on cable. And I guess people live and die by that. They like watch Christmas movies a tremendous amount. It's a very profitable genre just to make tons and tons of Christmas movies and then play these Christmas songs. I'm sure there's some sort of theme about people getting together or whatever. It's, it's a big thing for people. I don't live and die it. I love my old Christmas hits. I love the Charlie Brown Christmas special, but it is, uh, it is an interesting world.
0: No, there is a collective nostalgia for Christmas. I guess the idea of pine trees, a heavy snow, everything coming right, right? A warm fire that everybody seems to want to hearken back and connect to. Although you lived in California out in the desert uh, for five years of your life, are, are people out there also trying to hearken back to essentially what is a Northern Michigan world? They have a
1: Christmas parade. They have a Christmas. Uh, they have a golf cart parade. They have all. It gets down to the 50s, Zach. It's very cold, and people uh, bundle up. But a lot of some of those Christmas movies and songs and stuff were written in the desert, where Hollywood people would go for their vacation. So yeah, it is. It is Christmas everywhere, even if there's no sleigh and no snow. But occasionally, in the desert, kids would drive up to high altitude, fill their pickup truck with snow, and then come down and have a snowball fight. And that okay. was something.
0: No, I I mean, I spent one Christmas uh, in Australia, and that was like a big beach day, basically, because it's summer down there. And you just don't think that, you know, the rest of the world is... is uh, you know, has warm weather and stuff like that. But clearly that's another kind of thing. But back to Mariah Carey. The Economist back in 2016 estimated that between 1996 and 2016, she made about $60 million on just this song alone. Basically, at that time, they estimated she makes about $2.6 million a year off of just that song. And, you know, basically after uh, Halloween, she starts encouraging people to start playing that thing because there's obviously royalties involved. This year, she recently just lost a trademark battle as she was hoping to be called the Queen of Christmas, which I also thought was kind of interesting.
1: She's making a career of it. I appreciate that. And as a 52-year-old, I think somebody says like, all right, well, what are we going to lean in to maximize the amount of money you can make? And it's this. Well, it's funny because
0: she had a lot of other big hits that she's had over her career. She she is a, a nice singer, and nobody really talks about her for any of those sorts of things. This is probably going to be her legacy. And hey, good for you. I wish I had something that would make me $2.5 million a year as a residual. But this I podcast, guess-
1: Are we making $2.5 million on this podcast?
0: Uh, Not yet. We are going (laughs) to really need to up the audience and demand for, um, you know, that episode we did about uh, who gets to own the moon. I think we did that as our third episode ever. We really got to increase that uh, listenership and demand for it. (laughs) But it's, it's sort of interesting that, you know, she found her niche. And yet, do you think she's also the beneficiary of maybe coming about during the last great boom of corporate radio? In that, that song in '94, '95, '96, it was on radio. That is when radio was controlled by large corporations who essentially told DJs what you're allowed to play. And therefore, it hit you and me, our generation, kind of it. We are now adults with kids. And it's kind of the last things we can remember that were new. Most people struggle to find new music. It's hard to reach people as nobody really listens to radio anymore. And I kind of wonder if like the door closed on new Christmas songs getting out to people very easily and therefore like we're just going to be stuck with this song forever. And yet to her credit, she kind of broke through the the tough wall of Christmas songs to hear.
1: That is true. There is a there's a definitely an established list, and it is one that is liked and loved by people all around. And so she can join the uh Eternal Christmas. And you're right, maybe the last new one. We're gonna be still listening to that and the uh the baritone Mr. Grinch song forever until we're dead and maybe thereafter. I'm okay right. with it. Good for her.
0: Yeah, she's going to join, you're right, the Grinch song and then also that uh, Elvin and the Chipmunks, uh, you know, all I want is a hula hoop thing or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's amazing, though. But I mean, like, what a legacy. I mean, you could argue that hundreds of years from now, she's going to make an impact in ways that major leaders of the world won't be able to. Reach future generations, if you know what I'm saying. Music is eternal like that, and that if it's catchy, if it's poppy, people will always kind of want to hear it, but I don't know if uh, people are going to want to go watch uh, JFK's moon speech 150 years from now, if you know what I'm saying.
1: 150 years from now, nobody knows who Vladimir Putin is, but everybody remembers Mariah Carey, and that's the biggest insult to Putin of all.
0: (laughs) It's very possible. (laughs) Well, speaking of the holidays here, uh, Bloomberg Business uh, Week came out with a story about a major retailer, Sears, possibly spending its last Christmas as it's possibly going to die. Another thing that Mariah Carey will possibly also surpass. And here's the best paragraph I read. Barely three decades ago, Sears was the world's largest retailer, as well as the original financial supermarket, owning everything from Insurer Allstate and Discover Card to Codewell Banker Real Estate. And this time of year, its stores, once a fixture in malls across America, would be crowded with holiday shoppers snapping up clothing, home goods, appliances, or toys that their kids had carefully circled on the pages of the retailer's vulnerable Christmas wish book. This holiday season, the company barely exists with fewer than two dozen full-size stores in operation compared with the more than 3,500 Sears and Kmart stores operated by Sears Holding Corp. at its height. And Don, this article just kind of goes on to Sears' bleak last couple of decades sort of being mismanaged to death. What did you think about this article, and, and what does it make you think about when you just see the death of what was once an American staple in nearly every major city in America?
1: Oh, yeah, and it's and they partnered with Kmart at some point, and these were the hallmarks of every mall. Every mall had the, uh, landslo- the uh, landmark of Sears, and that's where you went to get stuff. When you went and got tools, which I got for my high school graduation present, I got some tools, and I got a set of socket sets, which I still have. And if you need a lawnmower, if you needed this or that, you always went to Sears. It was the go-to for everything. Now we go to Amazon or maybe Home Depot, but the, that was the world. It was all tools. I remember we never went to a Home Depot at, until it was after whatever. Sears was the thing. And so I, it, the article's really long and it talks about the step-by-step decline. It's sad and brutal. It's just bad decision after bad decision and decreasing demand, and no real counterplay to bring them back to relevance. They just give lip service to bring them back to relevance, and it seems like the guy that's uh, presided over this slowly made himself more wealthy while watching Sears go to nothing.
0: You're right. It, it was almost death by a thousand cuts. It seemed like all of the bad stereotypes that a hedge fund manager or corporate merger guy gets for killing companies. This article definitely helps um, you know, fill up evidence of like this is what happens when you have a corporate raider show up. At the same time, I don't know, this guy invested in Sears 20 years ago when Sears was dying even then, but it sounds like this guy was pretty cagey about being able to flip a lot of things. People looked at Sears as not exactly a successful store brand at that point, but a place that owned a ton of real estate across America, some of it very valuable. They had these signature brands like Craftsman, Die Hard, Kenmore, Land's End, which they also just sold just because the, the brand itself has value. And it sounds like this guy was able to sort of enrich himself, but at the same time, just continued to let the stores die. I guess what surprised me was they said there's still, I don't know, a couple dozen stores this Christmas still selling stuff like how do they operate that? Like, how are they even getting merchandise to put in their their stores? How do they finance the merchandise? Like, it just seemed like aren't they just supposed to be dead at this point? Whenever I drive around our local area, you see these like broken down malls with like broken Sears signs, and it just seems depressing. Do you ever go
1: to Kmart towards the end?
0: Oh. Kmart towards the end was so bad, so unorganized, so dirty. Even like it seemed like they just des- they decided to hire people that would act like demoralized workers. <laughs> it was so depressing. And in even the last Sears that I was I went into a couple of years ago just felt the same way. Unorganized, poorly lit. Where is anything? Almost like nobody cared. And, and it just was this barren place. Yes.
1: Yes. And they owned a bunch of real estate firms. You know what it reminds me of is your boy Jack Welch built uh, General Electric into a behemoth, but really was not as profitable as anybody thought and were very dependent on financial instruments, and then slowly sold off piece by piece by piece. And now it's a shadow of what it once was. And maybe that's for the better, better for consumers, more choices. And that's why it died, is that we can use Amazon or so many other things to find better resources, go to Tractor Supply, go to Target or uh, Kohl's or Home Depot or whatever, Menards. And you can find so many different competitors that have better prices and better services. And Sears just isn't the one stop anymore. And maybe that's better for consumers.
0: No, it's amazing because it's one box store (laughs) that got destroyed by multiple box stores, right? Every one of those places you just mentioned essentially is a big, ugly box store, but just leans in even more on their specialty. And it just seemed like Sears by the end just couldn't, couldn't find uh, what their niche was anymore. I think they were almost too confused by everything they had. At the same time, you know, they said in the article, the company started in 1893 as a major mail order company that that went across America when a time when America was not very connected. And clearly it did innovate. It did grow. It did start up tons of different businesses, which will continue to live on. As I mentioned, the insurance companies and the finance companies and all these different brands and therefore, I don't know, I mean, you could say in 1993, Sears was probably still on top of its game to to be able to survive a hundred and, you know, roughly 30 years. Isn't that pretty good? I mean, shouldn't we maybe just stand here and applaud at how long they were able to go and maybe not mourn the death, but celebrate the life of what they were?
1: Yeah. And they did make one huge transition that was from the mail order company, which you could order a house from or a windmill or anything out on the frontier to a successful store in a mall, because those malls weren't there, malls weren't a thing. Then malls were a thing and Sears was the king of the mall. And now that's gone away. What I think is ironic is that what we love about Amazon, because when I need something, I often just look at the Amazon app on my phone. I don't even search the internet or think of going to a store. I just look on Amazon and because it's one-stop shopping, which is what we want in an app uh, and from home. But if you are going out to a store, one-stop shopping doesn't seem to be what America wants anymore. Nobody says, you know what I need? A turtleneck and a snowblower. Well, Sears is the place to go <laughs> to get those two things. People say, "I if you need a snowblower, maybe go to Home Depot. If you need a turtleneck, maybe go to Target or Kohl's or something like that. But you don't look for both in the same spot. But that's what Sears once was, was one-stop shopping. I do think much like Blockbuster, they had the resources and the ability to jump all in on this internet thing and streaming and online ordering, and they could have done it. They just didn't focus on it. And somewhere there's somebody that said, I told them, I told them as soon as Amazon came out, we got to triple down on this and close the stores and we can get back to our roots as a mail order. And they probably have that possibility, but it's an
0: opportunity foregone. No, that's a really good point. At some point, I'm sure you're you're right. Somebody was thinking about, hey, we've got to now start pivoting. We've got to be willing to accept that our growing part of our business will be taking over for our currently profitable part of our business. At the same time, you know, just the age of the mall itself seems to be kind of in slow decline or at least in a right sizing. They have a lot of real estate, right? I mean, I mean, it would have been a major turnaround by, you know, you would have really needed a visionary to kind of figure that out. And let's face it, if this is the business, you know, it's the business you can continue to lean into and clearly it's dead. I I guess what, one thing I just sort of was thinking about is this fall, I was listening to a book about the fall of Rome and the author just sort of pointed out that, you know, from Rome at its like absolute peak and apex to sort of when the barbarians finally, you know, blasted through the gates and destroyed the empire, it was probably three to 400 years of like slow decline. At the end of the book, the author just said, it's not necessarily that Rome fell, which should be shocking. It's the fact that for three to 400 years, it continued to kind of limp along and continue to like fairly function fairly reasonably and the author just points out and it points out to like the idea of like strong institutions strong bureaucracies competent workers and managers that were able to just to kind of like keep doing their jobs even though things were in decline and I don't know I feel like Sears has been declined for so long should we possibly celebrate the idea that Sears was able to like slowly die over many decades and it was a painful death but they had strong institutions, strong leaders that could at least just, you know, keep turning the lights on every day.
1: Well, it takes some some focus and uh, to do that, but it just was an uh, eventual inevitability. And I think that's what, because they failed failed to evolve. And I think it's a cautionary tale, much like Blockbuster. So, yeah, we can give respect to dying slowly, but they're still dying. And not That's gracefully, true. and not gracefully, by the way. Not really gracefully. It's not like a pretty thing.
0: Well, it's interesting though, you say like a a failed inevitability, because I'd love to know at what point <laughs> did everybody working at Sears know this thing is dying, right? Like, because at some point everybody believes we can save it. If we just try this, and that seems to be what this hedge fund guy who was trying lots of things, partly I think just out of his own you know, greed or wanting to get money out of this thing because he made a huge investment. But it also seemed like there were times where he felt like he could really save it. And clearly it just didn't happen. And so at what point does it just become inevitable of it's dying from just it just needs to, you know, a new breath of fresh air kind of thing?
1: I think when they realize that they can't get they can't borrow enough money and that nobody wants to invest in it. And then uh, at some point in the article, the guy, uh, the guy declares bankruptcy just to get rid of the debt. And then screws the debt holders. And then they move on to this try and reawake it again. Does anybody want to loan us money now?
0: Well, I don't think anybody wants to loan them money. Do you think they should keep the last Sears and just turn it into a museum? <laughs> like, I mean, you know, maybe the government should take it over and turn it into like a national landmark. But the idea of like nearly 150 years, this company stayed around. And maybe people in the future will want to visit like what an old store looked like and a and store of everything and have the tractors next to turtlenecks. Although do anybody wear turtlenecks anymore? You know, I don't know. I just thought they'd be kind of interesting. Elizabeth Holmes
1: might still be wearing turtlenecks.
0: She's, I, wearing,
1: she's wearing prison gear now. Um yeah I I I <laughs> I do love the idea of taking your kids to Sears to see the poor lighting and the uh snowblowers and whatnot and just lined all up. And y- yeah, I, I, I don't think that anybody wants to pay the bills for that. I could see that as uh, somebody shaking their fist in Congress saying, can you believe we're funding a Sears?
0: <laughs> oh, Sears Museum. Although, I mean, this summer I went to Lowell in Massachusetts and they've spent the last 50 years really leaning in on their historical Um, significance of being one of the first places where like major manufacturing happened in America. And they're, you know, turning some of their old plants into museums before the Sears is dismantled. And we try to bring it back. Maybe we should just save it now. Leave the riding lawnmower craftsman there. Leave the Land's End uh, turtlenecks there. You know, have the auto uh, store or, or tire thing there. I just think maybe we should let's 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 be proactive about this.
1: you got to have a foundation that picked it up and that's the problem is that they're found there they fell apart like henry ford's greenfield village and uh and his museum is basically a hall of honor for the ford and the first ford factory is there and you can look at all this was the life like at that time when henry ford passed or lived his glory days and so but ford had the money they they there's the cash there to fund all that sears slowly whittled it all away if they'd just gone out a blaze of glory maybe they could have funded that and just left it there that would be a way to go out
0: well henry ford went around the country and literally brought uh, edison's lab to uh, greenfield village he brought lincoln's chair in maybe they should go on a purchase the thing and just buy an entire sears and then set up a sears at, at greenfield
1: if we can convince the people at greenfield village that that's what they need a Sears.
0: I don't know. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I I will say as a kid, I remember that huge catalog coming to our house. Oh, yeah. um, of course, on, on the front page of that cover was usually a snowy outside, a, a fire lit house. And, um, you know, people saying the holidays coming. And uh, God, I remember just sitting there and staring at all the things I thought I'd get. And uh, I don't know, just another era of time saying goodbye. Oh, yeah. Well, the final story then is about Velveeta cheese cups. And apparently Kraft is being sued by a law firm and by a person that thinks of false advertising. And here's the best paragraph I read. A Florida woman is accusing Kraft Heinz of misleading advertising based on the time it takes to prepare a single serving cup of microwavable mac and cheese. While the company markets its Velveeta shells and cheese as being ready in three and a half minutes, Amanda Ramirez says that's only the amount of time each cup needs to be microwaved and that the actual preparation process from stirring in water to letting the cheese sauce thicken takes longer. And Don, this article just goes on to say people feel like they've been lied to as it takes longer than the uh, advertised time to make Kraft Velveeta cheese. What'd you think about this? Good idea, or this is the dumbest thing you've ever heard?
1: I respect this lawyer, because this lawyer files three lawsuits a week, all at food companies for poor labeling. Like, is this really vanilla? If there's no vanilla in it, doesn't it have to have vanilla beans? This lawyer is just going hard on holding people accountable. And I respect that. I hate poor labeling. I hate the term natural, because natural means nothing. Are there really berries in the Pop-Tarts? I don't think there's enough he's suing about that too.
0: I respect it. At the same time, this is like, I think the most American sort of story that I've seen in a long time is I really think 99% of people are like, shut up and just eat your mac and cheese. And at <laughs> I the talked same- to
1: my wife about this. She said, this is why people hate Americans.
0: Yes is shut up and eat your mac and cheese and stop whining. Because this is just where we all sit here and want to like split hairs over stupid laziness. And at the same time, you are 100% correct in that if you are saying that something is supposed to do something then shouldn't you have to do it? And don't we need watchdogs out there keeping corporations on their toes, thinking about it? As you said, this guy's constantly filing different lawsuits. He's apparently sued Frito-Lay over not using enough real lime in their hint of lime chips. Uh, How much fruit does Kellogg's actually put in their Pop-Tarts? As you said, the vanilla. I I guess like somebody's got to be watching out for people, right? And I think at the same time, it's so nitpicky about this sort of thing of like, well, technically that's how long the microwave needs to be turned on. But you're right. There is time in the preparation of, I guess, stirring um, Velveeta cheese, which I personally think is super gross, that needs to be accounted for as well.
1: Yeah, fair enough. I, I have never had a cup of Easy Mac or instant Velveeta cheese. I mean, making the real mac and cheese takes a few minutes longer, but it's tastier. Now, I don't even do that. I, I, if I'm going to make mac and cheese, I'm making real mac using real cheese, and like it's going to take an hour or so. But I'm okay with that. I, I'm really ready to make the trade-offs. Now, a younger, more impulsive person that I used to be would work landscaping-type jobs and then come home for a half hour, 45 minutes to quickly eat lunch and get back to work. And then it mattered. And I remember being like, oh, this is taking longer than it said. This isn't the real case. And uh, yeah, it, it would bother me slightly, although I wasn't a big microf guy, I was more of a stovetop guy. But even then, I'm sure the directions indicate that it's shorter in duration to prep than it actually takes. So uh, I, I do like the accountability stuff. I think this is good. I want to have accurate definitions and accurate labels.
0: You could go and join the class action then if you were in this rush to get home and only had budgeted three and a half minutes of your lunch. It sounds like there are multiple plaintiffs across multiple states that are all going for $5 million in damages from this particular suit. I think the thing that just sort of rubs me wrong when you read this is the sort of legalese that is just brought into this about like the technicalities and Um, It says Ramirez legal team says that she is like many consumers who, quote, seek to stretch their money as far as possible when buying groceries and chose Velveeta over other similar products because of the prep time prominently promised on its label. She wouldn't have bought it had she known the truth, they said. And so, Don, I guess if we go from three and a half minutes to four and a half minutes, is that a deal breaker? Do you think uh, a lot of people would have changed their shopping habits for this?
1: Fair Labeling Act came in in 1966. These companies should be held accountable. And it shouldn't be this lawyer. It should be a politician. Somebody should run for office and say, like, you're getting screwed, America. You ever notice it takes you more than three and a half minutes to make Velveeta Easy Mac? You're getting screwed. Now hold these corporations accountable. This is a spot for a politician, not a lawyer, or this lawyer should become a politician.
0: Yes, and in some ways, uh, Americans would agree, like corporations are trying to rip us off, they're always lying to us, we need a watchdog. And at the same time, I think most Americans also look at this sort of thing and say, this is the dumbest thing ever. (laughs) I can't believe somebody's this lazy and all they wanna just do is sue things. And therefore, I bet you people like, on one hand, wouldn't support it because of the individual lawsuit that this is bringing up. And on the other hand, they would say, yes, corporations lie to me often. I hate that about them. But I don't agree with this, right? It, it, it doesn't like the, it's, like, it's like two contrasting ideas that people probably can't rectify.
1: Well, and also it's driving up the cost of the mac and cheese for the probably mostly low-income people that buy this product. So the lawsuit drives up costs for them and uh, probably declines profits for stockholders like Warren Buffett. So uh, it, it is—it's uh, not a win for many people, but I think it's a small victory for a person against going against uh, corporate lies and greed. <laughs>
0: Uh, If I had to serve you just the Kraft dinner from the powder or the Velveeta, do you have a preference?
1: Kraft, for sure. I lived on that stuff. I'd buy a 50-pack when I had money, and then I'd know that if I ever didn't have any money, I could always have mac and cheese.
0: That's true. I think my favorite was um, when we were taking our daughter to preschool. Every so often, a sort of plea for the parents to please stop sending Easy Mac in for their kids' lunch because <laughs> the teachers did not have enough time to prepare it for all of the students that were bringing it in, and they were missing out on their own lunch. And therefore, maybe this really is a bigger deal than uh, I can understand. Time matters for a lot of people in a lot of segments of life.
1: Oh, and I'm sure they're selling quite a few packages of this. It's a lot of lost time. If time is money, there's a lot of value lost here.
0: Do you think I could sue like Doritos because I'm always disappointed when I open up potato chip bags and like there's only like a quarter of it filled with potato chips and the rest was just air?
1: No, because it says on the bag some settling could have occurred and that's why there's not that many. You could do (laughs) Pringles and Pringles are always full, but Pringles are
0: freaking disgusting. (laughs) But it makes me sad when, like I open up the bag and it's just not very full. Like I don't know, can I just sue them for making me not feel good, even though they technically did put the amount of ounces on the bag?
1: Sure, and then they can counter argue that if we filled it, you'd be even you'd feel even worse by the time you left that empty
0: bag on your couch <laughs> But man, it tastes so good going down. <laughs> uh. I don't know. uh, There's nothing I can really even ask you to rank about these three random stories. I just thought they were kind of interesting. And uh, I'm sure that I'm probably going to hear Mariah Carey uh, over the next uh, couple of days here. And um, I guess it does make me ask you, like, in general, I don't want to hear Christmas carols until after Thanksgiving. Some people I know, though, they get the Christmas stuff rocking by mid-October. Where do you stand on when uh, people can start playing Christmas music?
1: We did Christmas cookies yesterday and last weekend put up the outdoor Christmas lights and tree and the tree two weeks ago. So, uh, we were among the latecomers, at least in our neighborhood, to put up stuff. So, we're a little on the later side, but I'm okay with that. And I'm okay with Mariah Carey as long as I hear it just once in a while. But, uh, good luck to the uh, Easy Mac or uh, Velveeta Mac uh, lawsuit. I like that idea. And Sears just, ugh. Just sad. Can you imagine if you rode that train all the way to the bottom? You're the manager of the last standing Sears. Ugh.
0: Well, that's, I, again, I'd like to go visit one of these places. And I guess my question is, is when they turn the lights out on December 31st, is all I want for Christmas going to be the last thing ever played?
1: <laughs> Closing time. <laughs> one last call.
0: That would be the appropriate one, right? Yeah. Uh, well, Don, it's been a pleasure talking with you this week. I look forward to talking with you next week. Absolutely, Zach. Have a good one. Take care. Bye-bye.